We're going to just spend some time considering that passage that we read earlier in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. Back on the 4th of March, 1966, there was an article, an interview appeared in the London Evening Standard. I wonder if you can work out who said these words. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Who was it that said? John Lennon. John Lennon famously speaking those words, which, I don't know, I think maybe in some sense have been taken out of context, but in another sense, there was just a great sense of the popularity of the Beatles, which had swept the world before my time, I have to say, but it swept the world and captured so many people. They were phenomenally important. And as he sat in his luxury house in in Surrey, reflecting on the success that they'd had, he was reflecting on, on all sorts of things, and that was one of the things he said. Wrongly, I happen to agree with many who got very upset with that, but I think he was reflecting at the time. Simon, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, in in the NIV, he's he's titled Simon the Sorcerer, often referred to as Simon Magus. He was a man who was riding on a wave of popularity as we come to this passage. It's a curious passage that we come to As we've seen, the gospel spread out of Jerusalem because of persecution and come into Samaria. And we've seen Philip, just in the few verses before, begin to preach the gospel and see people turning towards Jesus. And in that environment that Philip was speaking, there was this man, Simon, who was very, very popular. Because he was harnessing sorcery to do amazing things. He was using power that was actually opposed to God. But very real nonetheless. Let me just say, as we come to Halloween this week, we sometimes think of domesticating Halloween and thinking it's all just a little bit of fun and and the Americans have made it all cuddly. But actually, we mess with a spiritual reality at our peril. But we must remember that Jesus has the victory over sin and death and hell. And that's why we're holding a light party. Jesus, light of the world, conquers the darkness of this world. And so there's an alternative, just a a joyful time that will be happening on uh, on Thursday afternoon, 4.30 till 6. And then the youth cafe will be open in the evening again to offer an alternative, a place of light where there is darkness And I think we can be lied to to just assume that it's all okay. Certainly Simon in the passage managed to convince people that it was all okay. He had a following and he was boasting. 
He was concerned with himself. He was wanting to build his own popularity up and point to himself as some kind of, if not a deity, then certainly somebody that had a hotline. And he was able to do all these things. Do you remember what Paul was just saying about communion? Couldn't be further from what Simon Magus was trying to say. Communion brings us to focus that it is all about Jesus. And here we have a man saying, it's all about me. Into that context, Philip preaches the good news. The good news of the kingdom of God that was established through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. People were drawn to what Philip was saying. They were drawn to Jesus. They were drawn away from what was going on with Simon. And in some ways it starts out as just a really straightforward story. Here's a guy preaching the wrong gospel. Philip comes in, preaches the gospel, people turn to him, but then it gets a little bit complicated. And there are two things going on in this passage which I'd like us to look at today. And they're kind of woven together. The story of Simon and his heart condition, which is what I gave this sermon the title of today, Heart Condition. But there's also another plot woven in, which we need to look at with the visit of Peter and John from Jerusalem into Samaria. See, the plot of Simon becomes a little bit tricky because in verse 13 we see what should be a great thing. Simon himself believed and was baptised. He's kind of picked out, aside from all the others that believed and baptised. Luke wanted us to see that, that Simon too seemed to profess belief and was baptised. But then there's a strange little thing that we'll pick up on in a minute. Because after he believed and was baptised, he followed Philip around all over the place, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Simon's eyes lit up at what he saw Philip doing. We'll come back to Simon in just a second, but, but in the midst of this story about Simon, there's kind of another plot that goes on that actually tries to help us see the bigger picture of what the Acts of the Apostles charts, which is the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, back in chapter 2, verse 41, we see the Jews accept the gospel of Jesus as Saviour and Lord. And in here, verse 14, the, the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria now had accepted the word of God. The gospel is spreading. Go to chapter 11, verse 1, and it spreads further to the Gentiles. The gospel that Jesus said would be preached 
in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here we see it beginning to spread out. This is an amazing story which we've got in front of us, but let's not forget, these people were living it. These people, it was unfolding, boom, day by day, week by week. And here the gospel hits Samaria. And it seems a little bit strange to us that as the gospel hits Samaria, so Peter and John seem to be called from Jerusalem out to Samaria. Almost like Ofsted inspectors to to verify what was going on. Is this for real? But then something quite striking happens as we read on. When they arrived, Peter and John, verse 15, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. It seemed that they had been pardoned, but not yet empowered to live a life of following Jesus. And various people have kind of taken this as as, as the particular way in which God wants to work by his Holy Spirit, that somehow it needs the apostles to come and, and lay hands on people before the Holy Spirit is given. But I don't think that's what this passage is actually talking about. Because actually in the very next chapter, Ananias, he's not an apostle, but the Holy Spirit works through him as he ministers to Paul. So it's not about that. So why is it? that this little incident happens where the Holy Spirit, which we assume as we read our Bibles, the Holy Spirit is at work in us as we come to conviction of our sin and step into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the normative understanding of what is going on as we are saved. But here it seems that the Holy Spirit has not yet been given. Two things to say, I think, at this point. We haven't got masses of time. The first thing to say is that the spirit-filled life is normative. It is standard issue in the life of every Christian. Let me read something from A.W. Tozer, which I think says it much better than I do. Satan has opposed the doctrine of the spirit-filled life about as bitterly as any doctrine there is. He's confused it and opposed it, surrounded it with all sorts of false notions and fears. The spirit-filled life is not a special, deluxe edition of Christianity. It's part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. We need to be asking for the Spirit's constant help and filling to live out our lives as followers of Jesus. We mustn't settle with a contentment that maybe God just doesn't want to bless me with his Holy Spirit. Let's not be satisfied with less than what God wants for us. 
But let's not also, let's not see that there is only one way that God works to give his Holy Spirit. See, this incident seems to be here for a very particular reason. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. They were so suspicious of one another. They could not understand what was going on in their two cultures. And it seems that this particular instance of the Holy Spirit being held back and and Peter and John coming and and praying that the Holy Spirit would come upon was a matter of, of unifying the early church of Peter and John and the Jerusalem church seeing that actually, yes, God was moving amongst the the, the Samaritans. And the Samaritans seeing that, yes, actually these Jews up in Jerusalem, they too are following the same Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit comes upon them, there's a unity brought. Jews praying for Samaritans. Let's not forget Back in Luke 9, last time John had come across the Samaritans, he was with Jesus and he said, shall we pray down fire on this lot? And Jesus rebuked him. And now he's praying God's holy fire that they would be blessed and enabled and empowered to be followers of Jesus. And then it's beautiful as the passage ends. Once they've prayed for them, Peter and John return to Jerusalem, but look, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. There's a unifying going on as the church expands, but then is just kind of saying, yes, we're all part of the same body of believers. So it's a strange little incident in the middle of this passage. And we could unpack it more and more, probably. I'm looking at the clock, it says quarter to one, but then we haven't moved that clock back. We haven't been here that long, honest. It's only quarter to twelve, I nearly had a heart attack. But there we go. It is a curious little passage and we could unpack it more but but safe to say the Holy Spirit is given us as a gift of God and we need him we cannot be Christians on our own we cannot do this on our own we need him every day and there is nothing wrong with asking people to, to pray with you and just ask that you would be refueled and filled again with the Holy Spirit. Ask them to lay their hands upon you. That is absolutely fine. Maybe you've never wanted that. Maybe you've kind of felt kind of suspicious, but we need the Holy Spirit and whatever he wants to give us to enable us to be his people in this place, in this land, at this time. Let's just return to Simon Magus, though. 
Remember back in verse 13 that he was following Philip around and he was astonished by all the miracles that he saw. His eyes were kind of lighting up and saying, ooh, what is this? Then he sees Peter and John lay their hands on the people and the Holy Spirit comes in power upon them. And in verse 18, Simon sees that the Spirit was given here in the laying on of hands. And he says to Peter and John, give me also this ability. Let me pay you so that I too can have this ability. Peter's response is very clear. The Holy Spirit is not for sale. God is not for sale. You cannot buy your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot earn your way into God's throne room. Peter is really discerning about what's going on here. His answer, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. See, Simon's heart was still attached to his old way of operating. Simon was impressed by the externals, but he hasn't encountered the eternal. He loved what he saw, but he didn't want his heart to change. I think sometimes we get too hung up on the externals. We concentrate on behavior and morality and all those kinds of things in the church, and we forget about the heart, which is the place where actually all those externals get changed. We concentrate on the external, and we forget about the eternal life-giving spirit of God that wants to work in our hearts to transform us. Really interesting this week, I got an email that was just reflecting on a, a gathering called the Sunday Assembly. I think I've mentioned it before. The Sunday Assembly is a group of people who, who gather in London. And uh, they're a group of atheists who gather in a church building And they do many of the things that we might do in church, but God is not included. They want to distance themselves from the kind of, the the, the strident atheism of, of, of folk like Dawkins, but they still want to be atheists. But they see that actually some of the externals of religious activity can be very helpful to society and to people's lives. But God is left out. Kind of looks at the externals and forgets about the eternal. Peter's words might might seem quite harsh as he berates Simon. But he does point to where Simon is at, that actually he has left the living God out of the equation. In verse 22, 
Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought. It's not a condition that God might or might not forgive, but actually he's putting the condition on Simon. If you turn, then you will find forgiveness, but perhaps you won't. Perhaps you won't find forgiveness because perhaps your heart won't turn. Simon's response coming out of his heart is this. Peter, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now I thought when I first read that, that actually that was a kind of a humble response. I'm not worthy to pray. You pray for me. But then think about what he actually says. He says, pray for me so that nothing you have said might happen to me. Simon's not concerned about his sin. He's only concerned about saving his skin. He's not concerned about dealing with the bitterness and the hardness of his heart. He just wants to try and avoid the inevitability of distancing himself from God. He's not prepared to pray to the living God and say, Lord God, forgive me, for I have sinned. Melt my cold heart. He just wants to avoid the punishment. Simon wasn't prepared to let God in. And we're kind of left assuming that he never did. It's one of those kind of open-ended things. We never actually see what happens to Simon. There's all kinds of stories about what happens to him in the early church, and and none of them are particularly substantiated. But there are some say that, that he opposed Peter from that day. There are some say that he set up a sect. Don't really know what happened to him. Scripture is silent about it. But you're kind of left feeling that he would walk away sad like the rich young ruler because it was too much to actually allow God into his heart. I wonder, are there echoes of Simon for you today? where actually there are externals that you you kind of do and you're quite happy with that, but you won't let God into your heart. Or maybe there's a compartment of your life that is your religious compartment and you're very happy with him to, to have that bit, but you won't let him into the other compartments of your life. Jesus said that he came to bring life in all its fullness can only be full if we allow God in fully. Or do we want God on on our terms? Allow him into the bits that, that we feel we can let him into. Wonder today, In what way you need God's anointing 
on your life. God's help by his Holy Spirit in your life. Maybe there is somewhere that you just need his help in particular to release into God's hands. Maybe it's your future which you want to keep control of. Maybe it's a hurt that you feel if you let go, well, that will be letting somebody off scot-free. Maybe it's your, your family. Who knows what it is that, that maybe you're holding on to today, but let God in to each and every part of your life. Ask his enabling, his anointing, his presence. So that actually as we come from this table out into the week, we are enabled and empowered by the living God. That we live our lives not about ourselves, but about the God who made us. The God who loved us enough to die for us. Maybe that there are sacrifices you need to make, but do them in God's strength, not in your own. Ask God's help.